This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. So you can seek to be a multiplier in the sphere of influence that you have rather than being a diminisher. And there's another book called Give and Take, which really uh, takes this to a different level in terms of leadership development and the way you land for people. And I call this a service above self kind of posture which really gets into how you are building the community around you. Welcome back to another episode of the Faculty Factory Podcast. Today, we're talking with Patrick Smith from the University of Mississippi. Patrick, how are you doing today? Why don't you tell us all your titles? I know you got a lot of them. So I'm doing great today, and uh, my title, so I'm a um, professor in the Department of Family Medicine, and I'm an Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in the School of Medicine, and I'm the Chief Faculty Affairs Officer for the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Oh, my goodness. And how did you find yourself in that faculty affairs position? That's a great question, Kim. So way back in the um, early 2000s, I got bored with the things that I was doing in the Department of Family Medicine, and I began trying to find ways to um, support our School of Medicine. And one of the things that I kept... Uh, being invited to participate in was uh, ways of thinking around organizational pain points. So I got involved in um, training all the residency programs across the campus and a large number of our faculty around uh, wellness and impairment. That led me to doing analyses of certain organizational problems like our trauma system. And that led to me being invited to be on the curriculum committee. And the lady who was inviting me to all these things is now our answer for health affairs. She's the CEO of this place. And now she and I began a couple of seconds you bleeped out there you before you mentioned her name. What's her name? Luann Woodward. And she and I began thinking about uh, the curriculum. There was a lot of focus on students. And I began asking questions about faculty. And we didn't have a lot of answers around our faculty questions. And that's what led to her thinking about the creation of an Office of Faculty Affairs. And ultimately, she and our dean at the time, his name was Dan Jones, invited me to create an Office of Faculty Affairs and serve as the first Associate Dean for faculty. Hmm. Now, this organizational pain points, how did this, was this something you became aware of through literature or had your institution come up with this construct? Um, How did this Was this something that was happening in the 2000s? Where did this concept of organizational points come? That's my label. And the way that came about was reading the AAMC's monthly publication that's no longer in press called Academic Physician and Scientist. And just about every month, there would be a column that was of interest to me. And um, one of the common writers was a guy named Kevin Grigsby. Kevin, but at the time, he was with the Medical College of Georgia and then then moved up to Hershey, Pennsylvania, was at Penn State University. And one of the columns that he wrote about um, was that really resonated with me was being a... um, a mediator of conflict and being a handler of challenging situations. And um, he he and I began a conversation around that, and it and it opened my eyes to um, human based issues 
within a large organization that exists in academic medical centers. And I began thinking about this from a behavioral science perspective. And would you like for me to give you an example? I indeed would. So um, zoom ahead to the, I guess, around 2010, I began to notice a pattern of behavior, acts and activities by faculty members that was leading to coworker complaints and patient complaints. A, something us, called, what is it? What is it? <laughs> a physician assistance committee, and it failed miserably, which then led us to the literature to create what we call now a university professionalism collaborative. And now we have an early warning detection system of when faculty members engage in maladaptive behaviors, we bring it to their attention in a constructive manner. What we found is that many of our faculty were unaware of the fact that they were behaving in ways that would lead to coworker or patient complaints. So now we bring it to their attention and they create adjustments on their own and it decreases our risk as an institution. That's an organizational pain point that we addressed through a collaboration across our human resources group, our faculty affairs group, and our chief of staffs group. Now, this is fascinating. It sounds to me like way back then in the early 2000s, these organizational pain points centered around wellness and impairment was like the predecessor to all of this burnout and joy we're talking about today. And I love that you talk about this observing patterns. And that's something that those of us who've been in the faculty affairs, faculty development field for a while, just like any scientist or physician or clinician, you start to notice these patterns. And, and I love that you talk about that. And I'm curious if you could give us an example of a pattern of behavior that is maladaptive. And I'm guessing it has to do something with emotional intelligence. And I'd really want like to hear more about how you identified these patterns. Can you give us um, a story or two about what those look like? Sure. So emotional intelligence, situational awareness, uh, those are spaces where people have problems. So uh, I'll give you an example, a common example, is we will have a new leader who is moving into an organizational unit, and there is a need for change management. And the new leader has not really ever learned about or thought about or has created a framework for change management. And they may just expect uh, everyone to believe that they're the expert and that people should just do what they tell them to do. And oftentimes that leads to resistance and it leads to um, resentment. It is perceived as being uh, demeaning and that's an example of where coworkers begin to complain and in some cases that may lead to patient complaints and that sort of thing. Fascinating talk about it's making me think about these assumptions that we make, both as the um, the giving commu- giving communication and receiving communication. The assumptions we make about our intentions versus the impact, and how that that information. So let, let, let me share with you a an organizational pain point that we've tried to address to prevent what I just described. So another pattern that began to emerge that I witnessed in the late 90s and in the early 2000s was leaders being vetted through a very antiquated search process. And this was specific for department chairs in our School of Medicine. And I participated in and witnessed three 
department chair searches that failed. The way I thought about this was have situational awareness and emotional intelligence, people, people leadership skills, personal attributes that we would want in our workforce, business acumen, and also being strategic and visionary. We needed to change the way that we recruited leaders and what we looked for in leaders. So I proposed a different way of conducting chair searches. And now we are um, conducting not only searches for academics, but also for executives on our campus. And we're in the middle of our 30th leadership search and we focus on leadership competencies as the first uh, way of vetting people beyond their credentials and experience. This is a centralized search process and has been very well received and even other institutions in the state that are state-based institutions have learned from us and we have consulted with other academic medical centers on how to do this. Now, I'm curious, the leaders that you are recruiting successfully through this competency model, I, I wonder how many of them appreciated that interview experience and that kind of laying the groundwork and having such a thoughtful orientation to your culture. And I'm wondering if that in and of itself, participating in that kind of a comprehensive process was became a tool that they then used to carry forward recruiting their own faculty members or in externally and then maybe leaders internally. Do you have any sense of how that process has kind of infiltrated the um, the the culture just by virtue of you you starting that with um, your leaders. Absolutely, uh, one of the add-ons to that search and recruit process is something called our lead program. So we spend ninety days of mentorship meetings and networking and self-directed learning with new leaders, and in part of that we make available to new leaders a, a model of search and recruit that they can use at the division chief level or at the faculty level. So you would mentioned about this mediator of conflict when you were um, collaborating or learning from Kevin Grigsby. Can you tell us a little bit more about these challenging situations and how you incorporated this this mediation component? So um, the, the term that Kevin used and published um, was based upon a Harvard Bu Business Review article from many years ago, and it's called Being a Toxic Handler. Um, just today, I received a request from a department chair to handle some toxicity. I will be working with him and his executive leadership team to manage a, a, uh, an organizational unit within that department that is um, developing some toxicity. Um, one of my goals will be for um, he and three of his vice chairs to learn how to think about change management and how to think about managing conflict and mediating conflict between adult faculty members. I remember last year, we, you and I were on either a call or maybe at a professional development conference, and you talked about high-velocity culture change. And then I subsequently hit you up via email to share that information, and I was just fascinated by those articles and um, commentary and chapters you sent me and I think that sounds like what, what you're talking about there. I, that is culture change. I can't imagine what a lift that would be. I guess it just it overwhelms me to have someone say, we've got a toxic culture. Can you or your folks or your team come in and help us fix that? I mean, that, 
that to me sounds like something maybe back in the day you had hired a consulting firm and that would be six figure kind of a subcontract and it would take a year, two, three years. And so the fact that you're doing that, it just kind of shocks me. I mean, can you maybe give us a little bit of insight into the, the depth and breadth of that kind of an intervention for you? Um, well, it's, it's interesting you bring that forward. Um, the way I've thought about this is we have, um, for example, 23 department chairs in the School of Medicine. We have a little more than 60 division chiefs scattered across that, those departments. We have um, six deans on our campus with about 1,200 faculty. So the, the leadership recruitment work that we're doing, the leadership onboarding system, and the consultation work that we do out of our office are really targeting that group of leaders, those 60 division chiefs, the 23 department chairs, and the six uh, deans, and how we can help all those people really be the face of the culture so we focus on values and promotion of those values. We're very explicit in our bi-weekly onboarding of new faculty about what the expectations are of behavior and how that's related to our values, our mission, and our vision in both institutions. So we have now onboarded well over a thousand people over the last nine years. Uh, that are faculty members. We've onboarded scores of leaders, and we're just very consistent in that message. And I think that's gradually creating the culture that we want to actualize here. So it has to be consistent across different mission areas and very systematic across time to be able to get that culture that you're looking for. So I almost choked on my water here when I heard you say a bi-weekly onboarding of new faculty because we do it once a year. And so when I heard you say bi-weekly, wow, you really are invested in getting people early and really uh, emphasizing those core values of your institution. You don't play around. Yeah, we, we initially we were doing it weekly back in 2010, and then we we had two payroll systems at the time, and we've consolidated our payroll system to a bi-weekly payroll. So hiring dates for a new faculty member can only happen on a payroll beginning, um, which is every two weeks. And it's been very interesting because we have about 100 people that are involved in some way, form, or fashion with onboarding a new faculty member. We even give them a a gift basket when they arrive. So uh, there's a a fair amount of social and behavioral sciences that uh, suggest that a person's initial experience into an organization has a big impact on the retention of that person over time. So we want that first experience to be a red carpet concierge level of experience. Oh, I love it. Love it. Now, back to these values. Uh, I can certainly envision you sharing, welcome to the University of Mississippi School of Medicine. This is our mission, vision, values. Is there any component to the new faculty members exploring their own values and how their values align with the institution's values. Because we know from the work out there that if you're you know, living a misaligned life will destroy you. So if your values are not in line with your institution, you tend to have a higher levels of dissatisfaction and perhaps burnout. So I'm curious if there is, um, if you've figured out a way to raise awareness of faculty members' own values explicitly and how those jive with your institutional values. So let me share with you an example of of a value that we take very seriously. And with every uh, new onboarding sequence, I go through this with new faculty. 
And um, that value that we have as an institutional value is a, uh, an appreciation of diversity and inclusivity. And I uh, point out to everyone in the room that they have various dimensions of diversity. And I pause and ask them to reflect on what are the various dimensions of diversity that exist within them. And I let a minute or so go by. And I don't ask them what those different dimensions are. Acknowledge different dimensions. And then I point out how important it is for us as an institution to take advantage of those different diversity because there is empirical evidence that getting a group of humans together with different dimensions of diversity actually helps create greater levels of innovation. And so as an institution, we want to be very inclusive of every form of diversity to help us be innovative with high quality in everything we do and superior safety within our health system. And so what I ask people to do is to be assertive, not to be passive, not to be aggressive, be assertive, and then we have a conversation around what that means. And I tell all these people that they, that I think of them as being culture change agents. I even encourage them to put that on their CV. <laughs> and they usually laugh at that. And then I, I go into the notion that they are uh, role models and they are influencing many people across time, and they are actually impacting the culture that exists here, and they're bringing to bear their different dimensions of diversity in that cultural influence. And we are very interested in having a high-performing, high-reliability culture here with high-level quality in everything we do, we want them to have integrity, authenticity, and to be connected to something bigger than themselves. And so I have that conversation with them every two weeks, and we make it a dialogue. I'm curious over the almost two decades now that you've been doing this, have you observed any additional or new patterns involving this integrity, authenticity, connecting to something bigger than themselves, the uh, how that resonates with the new faculty. And I'm getting at the kind of generational differences. And when you talked about diversity, it made me think about you know age, diversity in age, and why it's so important to have people of different generations and age in a group or on a team or in an office. And so I was just curious if... If that, those components, specifically integrity, authenticity, connectivity, if that, if that is ringing more true then, now, my suspicion is that everything I've read about millennials especially is that it is really important for millennials to feel connected to their institution, to have something that's bigger than themselves, that, that's not, um, that they want more, uh, something more solid, to the community and engagement, that they're not really as um, perhaps enamored by name and reputation and materialistic things. They really want meaning and value. So have you noticed anything over the, the years in generational differences in that kind of diversity? Yes, and, and this is a concept that I think about routinely when I'm thinking about the individual faculty member. And, and, and it's hard to apply this concept with just one group or another group because I'm seeing it across groups. And it seems to be related to individual developmental and maturation stages. And let me tell you what I mean by that. 
We all come into this world and we are dependent upon someone else to live and survive. And over time, you gain independence. So many of our um, colleagues who may be my age or older, I happen to be 60 years of age, grew up in an academic medical environment where independence was a critical posture to be successful. And your your focus was on your laboratory and your research and your clinical expertise, and et cetera, et cetera. Many of the people in that, in, in my age range, I have met have grown beyond that and developed beyond that and have matured beyond that into something that I call interdependence. They now have recognized that it's not about them. It's about teams of people. They've really recognized that their success is really tied to many others. And I'm also beginning to witness that in younger people who are coming through a holistic review process to be admitted to medical school and are now coming out of residency programs and are joining our faculty ranks. So I think we have a cohort of people that have been screened in a way which lends them a relatively fast developmental trajectory to recognition of interdependence. And we also have a group of uh, a little bit older people that uh, have figured that out over time. And occasionally I see that that kind of mid-career group that get it as well. So I'm not seeing it in one particular group. I'm seeing it across groups, but it's occurring at different speeds within their trajectories. Fascinating. That is such an interesting insight, and I think there's so many implications therein for faculty development. You know, for those of us trying to stay in tune or in, in touch with faculty members' needs and wants and trying to step into their pain, meeting them where they are, trying to make their lives um, easier because it's grown more and more complex. I think that bodes well for us because many of the programs we designed and developed are um, based in teamwork and recognizing the, you know, the unique differences and the heterogeneity between us. So a lot of what we do, I think, lends itself to that kind of a mindset as opposed to, as you were giving example of some of us who are from older generations, the tail end of the boomers and the early Gen Xs, who will sometimes furrow an eyebrow and look at me and say, I don't know why you bother doing all this. Why do you have to have all these programs? They just have to do it, you know, just Stop talking, teaching them how to be a leader. Just They should do leadership. They shouldn't be learning, spending so much time learning how to write grants. Just write grants. <laughs> spending so much time you know, learning how to be good teachers. Just teach. So that kind of a mindset is, I see that more in people who are um, you know, raised, as you put it, I mean, they're just so right. That's how we were brought up. You just, your success is based on how hard you worked by yourself, did your thing, and just plowed straight through doing it. As opposed to the, you know, the times have changed. Things are so different now that it's, that's not the tried and true way of, if you just put in the hours, you're going to get the grant. You'll get the papers. You know, it's not the way it happens. So it really begs us in faculty development and academic affairs to be aware of that difference and that different mindset and those values as you brought up. So I think I love that that insight and that awareness that you got from Kevin and that you share and that you've, you've in, you know, in woven through your programming. Another comment I'll say on what you just said, when you, when you get right down to it, and you're an example of this, the uh, WAG uh, project that you've created, 
is really around habit development. One of the things that I think we as faculty affairs and faculty development leaders can do for faculty is bring forward features of the social and behavioral sciences to help people be more successful in their roles and responsibilities within academic medicine. And a lot of it has to do with habit development. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you, you really hit on something important there is that building a habit of health and wellness. So it's all those habits. It's just so easy when you come out of a training program. We see our junior faculty are so um you know, so used to the, the learning and the exams and the writing the, the dissertation and the passing the exams and studying. And it's so easy to just jump right into, all right, let me just start seeing patients and writing grants and writing papers and, pers- and, and run at this frenetic pace. And then it quickly dawns on them that, oh my gosh, this isn't, not only is it not a race, it's a marathon, but it's even worse. It's a marathon without a finish line. So I better get some healthy habits here because this will kill me. This pace is unsustainable. So I think you're exactly right. The habit goes beyond just um, task-oriented habits, but a habit, again, of celebrating life, of embracing a culture that is inclusive, a habit of being mindful of other people's stories, a habit of being uh, curious, a habit of listening with appreciative inquiry, a habit of being polite and gracious. So I, I love that whole, you're exactly right, Patrick, I love the habit concept, and I think about that a lot too. So one of the ways to, um, I guess, emphasize and embellish a pro through feedback loops. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways that we recommend to our leaders and faculty here to, to do that is to seek information from people in their spheres of influence to get feedback. And, I, and I've coached people on, on different levels to ask some very simple questions. It's to go to people that you work with and ask them, what do I do what are the acts and activities that I engage in that actually inspire you to want to come to work to do your job? And a couple of days later, and I go and I recommend to people to do this face to face, take notes. And a couple of days later, go back to those same people. I thought about what you said, and I've internalized it. And now I've got another question for you. What are the acts and activities that I engage in? that diminish your interest in coming to work to do your work every day. Oh, that is so brave. And once you begin to get that kind of trusting dialogue in place, you've got a handy feedback loop to really begin to adjust your habits. And I call that having the multiplier. Liz Wiseman wrote the book. So you can seek to be a multiplier in the of influence that you have rather than being a diminisher. And there's another uh, book called Give and Take, which really uh, takes this to a different level in terms of leadership development in the way you land for people. And I call this a service above self kind of posture, which really gets into how you are building the community around you. You know, that, that is powerful stuff. And as I said, that it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I, I, I guess, knowing you, that you do bring this philosophy to your biweekly um, onboarding of new faculty. And I know you do it with your team, your, your team. And it just, it takes the courage, though, to put it out there, but then walk that walk. And for those of you on your team to know that they'll there will be no repercussions that they um that this is the culture you've created that kind of honesty and trust and i similarly talk about with our in our junior faculty leadership programs um having an inner circle so similarly when you're talking i was thinking we say 
listen, I'm going to go into this meeting. It's going to be, um, I'm working on my, my interruptions. I don't want to interrupt people. I'm going to ask you to please monitor that for me. I'm going to try, I'm trying to hard work on that. And afterwards I want to debrief and you let me know how I did. So when you first started talking about the feedback loop, that's what popped into my head was this inner circle of people who you invite into your space, almost, you know, like a very close 360 of saying, these are the two, three things I want to work on. And I want you to feel free and I'm going to ask for you to be honest and share with me how I came off at that meeting or when I gave that talk or at the lab meeting, etc. And I totally agree with you that that feedback loop and that creating a culture um, is number one. It has to happen. It has to be modeled from the top down so people feel comfortable with that. But again, I applaud the, the comp the confidence and the courage to do that because I think that's tough for a lot of people to open up, especially junior leaders who are maybe fearful. They don't, you know, we, I think we have to help them learn to be okay with the fact that none of us is perfect and we all have room to grow and the criticism is meant to be, or the correction is, um, is helpful and done in love and from a, a kind heart versus a, you know, a punitive place. So I, I think that whole thing is just great. And I, and I applaud you for that, um, for that way of thinking and being there. Well, it's, um, it's aligned with, um, in everything we, we can always get better. And the only way we can get better is to ask others, you know, how did something land for them and give me some feedback so I can change. Yeah. And we're constantly changing. I often say to our new faculty uh, to be intentional with the change that is occurring rather than being protoplasm randomly falling through space. <laughs> Right. Right. You know, we, we skipped over. I, I definitely wanted to um, have you paint a picture of what your office looks like because people are always fascinated by how other people's offices are structured. So can you kind of broad brush stroke uh, what, what the University of Mississippi School of Medicine, faculty affairs, faculty development um, space and people and office looks like? So we um, have gone through, um, I guess, three iterations since 2009. Uh, our office was opened in July 2009. It was myself, a, uh, a director of faculty affairs, a, an assistant director of faculty affairs, and an executive assistant. And we then moved to a model of uh, including uh, a recruitment for leadership where we invited um, a director of leadership recruitment and subsequently a leadership recruiter as part of our office. Our next, um, I guess, model that we shifted to was creating uh, essentially a director of faculty affairs that's always been there from the beginning to a person who focused more on the professional development uh, side of the house. So we had that sphere, uh, the leadership recruitment sphere, the faculty affairs sphere. Over time, we learned, and by the way, we had caricatures drawn of these teams and we had photographs taken of these teams so that we had... Um, an appreciation of each other. Uh, more recently, we we had everyone write down what they're doing that is transformational in their bodies of work and what they're doing that is transactional in their bodies of work. And we have, as a group, decided to take a position that we had that was vacant, and we have uh, created a bigger administrative staff, so we now have a program manager or project manager, actually, and two administrative assistants to create a triangle of administrative support 
for our recruitment work, our development work, and our faculty affairs work. And I also have a piece of the professionalism collaborative across the campus. So those are our four big areas. And we're trying to um, get the directors of these bodies of work to spend more of their time in transformational thinking rather than engaging in day-to-day transactional activities. And we are seeing uh, a a really positive evolution to getting the transactional work with our administrative team and getting more transformational thinking at our director level. Now, let's, let's, uh, can we pause here a second? I would love to hear an example of those transactional, because we know a lot of the things we do by virtue of you know our daily lives are and must be transactional. Um, but I'd love to see an example of how you helped your leaders learn to triage transactional routines and, and adopt more transformational. Can you think of something without being um, divulging any kind of... Well, this, this all came around uh, about around a, a book. The title of the book is Do Nothing. And the concept is ask yourself everything that comes across your computer screen, comes across your desk in a single day, should that be delegated to someone else? And if so, how do you want to manage that body of work? So I'll use myself as an example. I have um, four proxies on my computer system here. What do you mean proxies? These are people who uh, can see all of my email. They can edit emails. They can make changes to my calendar. And so we have learned, these proxies have learned how to see email traffic and manage that email traffic and manage how that may fit into calendars, meetings, preparations, etc. without me ever touching that email. So that's an example of where we took um, a focused approach to determining transactional traffic and someone else is managing that. Yeah, that seems like it would be a pretty labor-intensive process. How's that? Well, I'm envisioning, so I'm, I'm thinking about our faculty members and how if we were to say, let's do like a old-fashioned speak, a time and motion study, where you know the common refrain we, we hear, many of us hear, is that it's just easier for me to do it myself. No, I, I know I, I know I should work with him or sit down with him or her and help them understand how to do this and that and the other. But by the time I do that, it's just quicker if I do it myself. So I'm, I, you know, that's the counter argument to this kind of a concept. But then you try to um, relate the fact that yes, it, it may be an upfront time investment to take a look at this in your instance, for example, in your example you just gave Patrick, of having your proxies sit down and let's talk about the types of emails we get and who can do what and and what is most efficient. So putting that system in place, first of all, you thinking about it, having the team, the fact that you have four proxies is, says something about the amount of support that you have that probably mo- most of our faculty don't have that kind of a support network. But you putting that team thinking about it, sitting down, implementing it, beta testing it, working out some tweaks, that takes effort. Of course, the end result is now you've got a well-oiled machine, but you've invested a lot of time and effort and thought into that and had a lot of people on your inner inner circle helping you figure that out. So I'm just trying to to bring that down to our faculty. How, 
how could we, or do you have another example of how we can implement that with our leaders other than ourselves or faculty? Sure. Uh, well, when I was a faculty member, assistant professor and associate professor, I engaged in very similar behaviors. And one of the things that we've done with faculty consultations are individuals who have access to some administrative support of some level. We have shared with them uh, different ways to delegate transactional activities to that to those individuals that are providing the administrative support on a regular basis. There's a um, there's a this goes back to social and behavioral sciences, by the way. So. Um, there's a lot of studies that have been done looking at um, humans who will seek a short-term reward that may be lesser in value than a long-term reward, which requires much patience and tolerance of time. So if, if, you, if you put children into different kinds of experimental conditions, they will often seek the short-term benefit rather than putting off that for the long-term benefit. It's the same concept here. Is, uh, in, I think in Good to Great, that famous book, there was a, um, a story around um, sharpening your saw. Right. And the parable is two young men working with a cross-cut saw, and they're not getting their work done very fast. And, they, and an old farmer asked them, Son, have you ever thought about sharpening your saw? And they say, we don't have time to sharpen the saw. Mm -hmm. So what I promote to people to get themselves out of being mired in the transactional is you have to step out of that and become transformational to ask yourself, how can I transform myself to not be mired in the transactional every day. And oftentimes that requires them sharpening their saw metaphorically. Right. And, and, and back to the habit thing, like you talked about, it's getting habits of sharpening your saw, getting your tools. A good craftsman will have his or her toolkit and all the tools will be in good working order. I love Absolutely. it. And, and it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all for any faculty member, but I encourage faculty members to really do some self-reflection. And, and I have them write this stuff down. How are you spending your time every day? And how do you want to spend your time every day? And how can you begin to make some uh, subtle adjustments here and there that can really shift things over time to get you the work profile that you would prefer. That's right. That's right. And because we do know that Tate Shanafelt's work in regard to physician burnout shows that if you're not spending approximately 20% of your work week doing things that give you meaning or give you joy, you are more likely to be burned out. And I think what you're saying is another part of that, the argument of that. It, this is not just a, um, a feel-good Band-Aid approach. This concept, this saw sharpening practice or habit is, uh, is vital to your success and vital to uh, being able to be resilient throughout the long haul of this academic medical career. That's really good stuff. I love how you've been weaving in social and behavioral sciences in what you do. Um, can't, can't, um, overemphasize how important the work we do in faculty affairs and faculty development and appreciation for uh, just basic social sciences and understanding human behavior and, um, and group processes and all those, those things that some people um, don't have the luxury of, of studying. So I love how that you've woven that into your, into your practice. And one of the things to I think we should all be thinking about is there was a big inflection point uh, several years ago with the MCAT. and That was the introduction of a section on the social and behavioral sciences. So 
I think this is bringing forward a group of people into schools of medicine who are going to have some fundamentals around the social and behavioral sciences before they ever hit the medical school curriculum. I think over time what this is going to do is reveal to us a cohort of physicians who have a better balance of knowledge and awareness of how the social and behavioral sciences fit into the uh, the physician's world in the future. And I think this will set them up for thinking about their own personal habit development as well as the, the habits uh, that can contribute to chronic disease states, for example. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Dr. Smith? I actually thought about imparting some wisdom, and my wisdom was the notion, this concept of dependence, independence, and interdependence inspirational goal is how to become a multiplier rather than a diminisher through feedback loops and how to be a builder in your community and that is a service above self mentality the last thing that I'll change I'll share with you all that I think really been influential to me is each time we have a thought that is a, essentially a wave of excitation at the neuronal level in our brain. And oftentimes, we articulate that wave of excitation through words. We also know that if you think the same thing over and over again, you will say things similarly. And the speed of that wave of excitation gets faster and faster, and we have automatic thoughts, and we express ourselves very quickly. And the way that reveals itself is through verbal and also nonverbal habits. If you think about your habit profile on a day-by-day basis, that helps define your character. And your character, as known by others, really will lead to your destiny. So as an individual in academic medicine, you have the opportunity to really think about your thinking, to influence how and what you say, that really define the habits you create, the character that reveals itself, and ultimately your destiny. That's something to think about. That's so true. Yeah. And and to put it more simplistically, uh, my friend, a psychologist, always says, don't believe everything you think. That's right. <laughs> well, this is, concludes another episode of the Faculty Factory podcast. Thank you to Dr. Patrick Smith from the University of Mississippi. See you all next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.